You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy everybody, this is CJ, and welcome to episode number 249 of the Dangerous History Podcast. So for this one, I'm welcoming back the very first guest I ever had on this show, all the way back in 2015. And that is, of course, Bill Bupert. Bill Bupert is a retired army officer and military contractor who is an expert in military history, especially the history of irregular warfare. And just a few months ago, Bill launched a podcast of his own called Chasing Ghosts, which I will, of course, link to in the show notes for this episode. And it is a podcast he's doing every fortnight, and he is covering the history and theory and practice of irregular warfare, as well as the opposite side of that coin, pun intended, which is counterinsurgency warfare, of which Bill is extremely skeptical, to put it mildly. But Bill is a very interesting guy to listen to, very sharp, very well read. And, you know, I'm an interested amateur when it comes to military history and irregular warfare and those sorts of things. I think I know a bit about those things just from studying them. But in those particular fields, Bill's expertise far exceeds my own. And in addition to that, as we mentioned during the episode, this has already happened as this episode is going out, that uh, just yesterday, as of when I'm recording this intro, Bill launched a second podcast dedicated to Stoicism called Simply The Dash. And so I would also recommend checking that out as well, as well as following Bill on Twitter, to which he has recently returned after being absent for several years during sort of peak censorship on the platform. But before I turn it over to my conversation with Bill... I've got to give another 20 shout-outs to excellent individuals who contributed to my Indiegogo campaign, which, by the way, is still live. Since it met its initial goal prior to its initial deadline, it is continuing to operate, I think, for maybe a year. I'm not even sure. I didn't read all the fine print. But um, anyway, if you want to chip in there to help me out as I'm still going through a rather difficult transition uh, time in my life and career, as well as for you to get some of those perks and benefits that are available to you there. Depending on how much you are kind enough to contribute, please check that out. I will, of course, link to that in the show notes. But special thanks go out to the following individuals. Uday Kumar, Tobias Tornell, Andrew Chilcote, Gordon Walton, Amanda Warner, Donald Wilms, Matthew Barber, Raphael Borowiecki, Kim Runarsh, Jeremy Paul, Emma Simmons, Nick Fisher, 
Andrew Grimes, Ben Venema, Adrian Queneville, Bryce Reddy, Alex Fromayev, Gleb Radutsky, R. Root 8, and Michael McNeil. Thank you all very much for your contributions to my Indiegogo campaign. And just a reminder that in addition to helping to support my work and getting yourself various perks and benefits via the Indiegogo campaign, you can also sign up to contribute on a monthly basis to support my work via Patreon or Subscribestar. And there's a number of benefits available to you there, some of which are the same or similar as if you contribute to the Indiegogo, and some of which can be found only there. So I do just want to let you all know that I recently put out a new bonus episode of the Dangerous History Podcast just for my contributors via Patreon and Subscribestar of five bucks a month or more. And of course, those folks are also able to catch ad-free versions of new regular DHP episodes as I put them out. And just looking ahead, I am continuing to work away at the next Wilson episode. These Wilson episodes, they always have a tendency to just keep growing as I'm working on them. So who the hell knows just how gargantuan this one will be when I'm done. But yeah, I keep thinking I'm getting to the light at the end of the tunnel, and then I find out, no, that's actually just a train about to run me over, and I'm still well within the tunnel. But as I'm recording this intro, I'm really committed to trying my best to get the Wilson episode done within a week or less of right now. But looking ahead, I've got my next DHP live stream scheduled for the afternoon of Saturday, December 17th. And that's for people who contributed the appropriate amount as a lump sum via Indiegogo or who contribute the appropriate amount monthly via Patreon or Subscribestar. They'll be able to tune in live and uh, ask me questions and all that sort of stuff. And they'll also be eligible to, if they're not able to attend in real time, they'll be able to access the recording of the live stream. So if you want in on that and you're not already eligible for it, please either contribute via Indiegogo or on a monthly basis via Patreon or Subscribestar. And one more thing is we have our next DHP book club Zoom call scheduled for the afternoon of December 28th. And just to let you all know what book we'll be talking about in this one, it is The Art of Not Being Governed by James C. Scott, which is a book I believe does have a pretty significant kind of cult following amongst libertarian anarchist type people, but I think deserves to be even better known and more widely read than it is. So if you want to be able to attend that book club, Zoom call and or to watch the recording of it, uh, if you're not able to attend it in real time or whatever, you can make yourself eligible either by plunking down 500 lump sum via Indiegogo or by signing up for 50 bucks a month via Patreon or Subscribestar. So thanks very much. And uh, again, I want to urge everybody to check out Bill's two podcasts, one of which he started several months ago and one of which he started literally yesterday. And um, I want to, of course, thank Bill for lending me his time and expertise for this episode.
Okay, so today I am very happy uh, to welcome back, after a long hiatus, the very first guest I ever had on the Dangerous History Podcast, whatever it was, six, seven years ago, something like that now. Uh, oh my Bill gosh, Bupert. it's eight years. Yeah, Bill Bupert, welcome back uh, to the Dangerous History Podcast. How are you doing? I am honored. Uh, CJ, you you have had a uh, a signature impact on me. I remember back when uh, in 2015, I'm deployed to Afghanistan. I recorded from Afghanistan, and you and I had somehow gotten in touch, and you said, I'd like doing a regular warfare discussion, and we did that for one episode, and you discovered that six episodes later, one episode was insufficient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, the first episode, we had kind of game planned back and forth through email uh, to kind of gallop through a couple centuries of irregular warfare. And then that first episode, we got through a couple of decades, maybe. So, yeah, yeah. it's a good thing we extended it. Um, so I'm sure I have plenty of listeners who have not listened to the whole back catalog and so haven't heard those earlier episodes. And I will, of course, uh, link to them in the show notes. But um, for any listeners who are not familiar with you and uh, your work and your background, can you give us the sort of short version of who you are and your background and um, your expertise and how you got it and all that sort of stuff? Here's an elevator speech is that I am a high school dropout who got into the U.S. Navy. And then once I was in the Navy, I said, well, maybe I should get a commission. I did not want to get a commission in the Navy because I wanted to avoid sea duty and deployments. So I went to Humboldt State University, got a degree in political economy. Humboldt State University in the in, in Calizuela is the university where if you go to Berkeley and you say, man, this is too right wing and oppressive, you come to my school. I was in like a VI Lenin Institute. But wow. when when I went there, CJ, hiding in the basement were, guess what, two Austrian economists. So, and the rest is history as, as far as uh, I got a great education in political economy, international relations, that kind of thing. Uh, eventually I got my commission in the U S army retired from the U S army in 2003. I had gone planet wide at various, various neo-imperialist ship pits during that time. I took four years to get the let out. I started contracting in 2007 and then after a few gigs, I found myself in Afghanistan in 2013 and 2015. And I was doing various things. In 2013, I was near Kabul and its environs. In 2015, I was training Afghan commandos and special forces up near the Uzbeki border at a Dutch-German base. And recently, in September, I started a podcast that I call Chasing Ghost and a Regular Warfare Podcast. I'm trying to issue new episodes fortnightly. So far, I'm, I just issued uh, episode five called Peak Gorilla, The Origins of Modern Irregular Warfare. And, and of course, um, if you would be so kind as to link my, my podcast, you know, to whatever show notes or, or things you have here, I'd be obliged. Of course. So that brings us up to speed. Okay. So, um, Am I remembering correctly? You actually literally have a degree in irregular warfare. Is that right? <laughs> you are correct. I, I have a master's degree in asymmetric warfare. Okay, there we go. Yeah. 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 Man, I wish that would have been offered um, when I was uh, in graduate school at the University of Tennessee, yeah. but I don't remember seeing that one in the catalog. So as a result of that, I, I'm both a, a scholar and a practitioner of special operations and irregular warfare. So. 
Yeah, yeah. So your podcast, you're studying, and I believe I've listened to every episode because I did just listen to your most recent one that you mentioned. Um, you are so either, kind. Oh, thank you. Uh, yesterday or the day before. And um, it, it sort of seems like there there's kind of two themes to your podcast, at least as I've listened to it so far. One is looking at uh, historical instances of irregular warfare and figuring out, you know, how they work and what makes uh, successful one successful. And then the other kind of prong that I'm seeing is kind of the other side of the coin, which is well, sort of a pun there, uh, criticizing the whole idea of coin, of counterinsurgency warfare, which has been, you know, a big deal in the U.S. military ever since the mid uh, 20 aughts, I suppose, when uh, Petraeus and those sorts of people came in and said, oh, yeah, we can fix Iraq. Indeed. And oh, yeah, we can fix um, Afghanistan. So I do want to talk a little bit about sort of both sides of that a bit. But um, could you just sort of explain uh, what you mean by irregular warfare and um, maybe some of the different forms it has taken historically? Certainly. So Conventional warfare, unified land operations, what most people would consider tanks, artillery, uh, naval ships, mud-to-space warfare, lions and tigers and bears, and everything brought to bear and uniform for massive armies to fight each other, a la World War I, World War II, maybe aspects of Korea, Vietnam. Irregular warfare is an umbrella term for Gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare, counterinsurgency, insurgency, guerrilla, counter-guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare. This would include cyber. This would include um, what I would what I would characterize as color revolutions, like what the Ukraine experienced in 2004 and 2014 and the Baltic states, the what I consider illegitimate expansion of NATO under color revolutions and those kind of things. It's uh, it, it would include espionage. It would include covert and clandestine operations. It would include special operations. Special operations characterized, for instance, in the United States by the Special Operations Command that happens to be in your state in Tampa with, I think, approximately 77,000 personnel assigned to it, of whom less than 10% are trigger pullers and, and the action guys. And I, I think what all of this covers is those things that are outside of the purview of conventional warfare as we know it from watching World War II movies. So um, taking kind of a big picture view, what would you say are the keys that make for a successful uh, irregular campaign or um, a successful irregular warrior or however you want to put it, um, what makes for an effective insurgency or unconventional resistance to uh, either an invading state or, you know, maybe an indigenous state, but that uh, some of the people don't want to live under anymore? What a great question, because I, if, if I may step forward, step back with a preamble on, on why I'm a cointra instead of a cointinista. A cointinista counterinsurgency enthusiast 
is people like you just mentioned Petraeus. You just mentioned what he did in 2007 and 2008 when he issued the new um, FM on counterinsurgency for the U.S. Army and joined forces for the U.S. and the allies on how we would conduct those and make it population-centric, economic-centric, whatever the case may be. What happens is I'm a cointer because when I look at this historically, so I'm on the opposite side of the coin, as you said earlier in an adroit fashion, I'm a cointer. I don't believe it's possible for the West to conduct a successful counterinsurgency. Hence, episode four that was published a couple of weeks ago, whose title is The Impossibility of Successful Western Counterinsurgency. And I have a number of reasons for that. So are you familiar with Nassim Taleb's notions of anti-fragility? Yes, I've read the book a while ago. Outstanding. So I recommend it to your listeners. And to put it in a nutshell, what Taleb is saying is that you have fragile and anti-fragile modalities in our lives. A fragile modality to me is big government, central government, fiat currencies, centrally controlled entities, what, even if they're corporate entities. For instance, you'll notice that Twitter under Elon Musk, I'll bet that three out of four people have been fired. And for the most part, those who are on Twitter have discovered that you're not seeing a lot of ineffectiveness as far as traffic and stuff. So there was a lot of fluff there. What anti-fragility is, is I'm going to characterize it first in a, in a general sense and then how it applies to a regular warfare. Anti-fragility is weightlifting. What it means is that when something is under stress, it either learns or gets better or gets more resilient over time or learns over time from that. For instance, in order to build muscle, you have to tear down muscle. Free markets and, and freely floating price systems are excellent anti-fragile modalities because you have literally millions or billions of transactions on a daily basis that through the free market are able to dictate where resources go, what the prices should be, what the prices shouldn't be. Because of course, what price determines in an anti-fragile environment is, do I want more of that or less of that? It's, it's, it's no more complex than that. Anti-fragile I also apply that to irregular warfare in this sense. It is my belief that historically, when I look at this, and you can read John Gentile's books and Douglas Porch's books, especially about this very thing, insurgencies, which means that they are fighting against an occupier that has come into the country. They are fighting against their own government. They are trying to, to achieve one of two civil war outcomes or are tr- either trying to carve out a portion of a given state or to take over the state wholesale as an insurgency, they know their terrain, they know their turf, they've got cultural IQ, they live there, they've got a huge stake in it. The three pillars of a successful insurgency are legitimacy, narrative, and perceived and real grievances. I say perceived and real grievances because grievances don't have to be real to make them a huge mover and shaker in motivating people to fight the man, as it were, in this case, an insurgency against a foreign invader or an oppressive state. So it, in, in the end, it is my belief that all in counterinsurgencies are fragile enterprises. For instance, let's suppose that we have a deep state, and this is how I characterize Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, and all the rest. 
a deep state Death Star with with no cultural IQ whatsoever, the hubris of thinking that it can plug into what it floats over anything that it believes to be the way that society should function, and they should accept that whether they like it or not. There are all kinds of second and third order effects and unintended consequences that lend themselves from that, that stop the counterinsurgency from succeeding. So when I look at America since 1945, and, and by the way, if it weren't for the Russians, World War II would not have ended the way that it did because four-fifths of the German order of battle, conventionally, by the way, were oriented against the Eastern Front from June 1941 on. And we could talk about that maybe in another episode because it, it is my belief, along with Robert Sintno, that the Wehrmacht died in June 1941. It was just a um, a slow death rattle from June 1941 until April 1945, when Berlin was finally invaded and bested. So what I'm what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to the Western application of counterinsurgency, they're they're operating from the back foot at all times, and as we've seen, they don't do it well. For instance, the British are very good propagandists who say, well, we've written the book on counterinsurgency. We know how to do it. Yemen, Malaya, Oman, and, and all the rest, Kenya, and all the rest. No, they haven't. When you examine it, not only is it horrific. Remember, the British gave us barbed wire imperialism. They gave us concentration camps at the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century. The British did not achieve what they make the claim out to be. And as a matter of fact, it was interesting. I was at a seminar this past year where I was given a presentation similar to what I'm talking about today. And I was hoping I had two British officers. I was hoping I had some British folks in the audience. And I happen to have two British officers in the audience. And I take a chainsaw to the British historical narrative. And they really had no repost to it. So I, I that's a feather in my cap. Yeah, well, the main area of study that I did in graduate school was actually British Empire. And I probably spent more time on, you know, the last century of it than on the earlier parts of it, just because for me, like for a lot of people, the latter phases of an empire are the most interesting, you know, when it's Certainly. declining and falling and whatever, like that's always a, um, a popular thing. By the way, um, I had mentioned to you uh, off mic before we started recording that I'm probably going to be teaching a course with Renegade University uh, next month in, in January. Excellent. And um, that course is going to be uh, a three-part course on the decline and fall of empires. And it's going to be a comparative thing, like not focusing on any one empire. I plan on, you know, mentioning examples from ancient right on up through uh, to the Soviet and, and American empires decline and fall. Yeah. And so I, I always had a, my timing was interesting in terms of, I was studying the British empire, especially the latter phases of it. And I was in graduate school, um, I think from 2004 to 2006. So right in the middle of like peak George W. Bush, you know, uh, Middle Eastern activities. And uh, right around the time that the, the Koinonistas were starting to come in and say, oh, yeah, we can fix it. And one of the things we're going to do is look at the British examples. And <laughs> I remember just sort of thinking, wait a minute, if the British figured out counterinsurgency warfare so effectively a long time ago 
where the hell is their empire? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just kind of basic common sense, you know, um, that if they were so good at that, then why did why did almost all of their empire evaporate? I mean, uh, by 1948, they had rocks. You had yeah. Ascension Island, you had the Falklands, you had Pitcairn, and that, that's about it. I mean, it, India was lost by that time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've I've long been skeptical of that. And honestly, um, you know, one of the things that made me become more and more radical of a libertarian and, and eventually a self-described anarchist was it was the combination of studying the British Empire while watching the Bush administration's foreign policy in real time simultaneously. And um, that was one of the things that, you know, really kind of made me confront the awkward truth that most Americans don't want to confront, which is the United States absolutely is an empire. And you can try and hide that with all the euphemisms you want, but it doesn't change the fact that, um, as I once heard Neil Ferguson put it, uh, if it you know, quacks like a duck and walks like a duck. It's probably an empire. I think something like Amen. that. Yeah, so. I, I, I agree 100%. And, and, and there's nothing new to it. I mean, our empire building, I think, started in 1871 with our first abortive attempt to land on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, I go back even further. Um, I actually have, and, and I've, I've evolved on this over the past, I don't know, decade or so, but um, I, I now make the argument that the United States has been an empire from the very beginning um, of its independence. And really even before that, because if you think back to uh, the colonial period, right, those North American colonies, what were they? They were the, they were the front lines of the British empire at the time. So um, there's a great book that I often recommend. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called habits of empire by an historian named Walter Nugent. And that was the book that really gave me the final convincing that like the U S has always been an empire. And the title kind of, you know, says that, that America's first few generations of leaders, they had been born and raised under the British empire. And prior to, um, you know, the seven years war, or maybe even the stamp act era, most of them were proud patriotic, uh, Britons. And so they had been kind of born and raised and steeped in literally the habits of imperialism. And so when they got their independence, uh, most of them almost unthinkingly just started replicating a lot of the same uh, approaches to politics and foreign policy that the British had. And so if you look at the very beginning of, of recognized American independence, the Treaty of Paris 1783 one of the most important planks of that treaty was that the United States got control of Trans-Appalachia, all of that land in between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River, which more than doubled, you know, what the original 13 uh, rebellious colonies were in landmass. And that the Americans really had no, you know, what you would normally consider legitimate or even sane claims to those areas because almost no Americans, by which I mean, you know, English speaking uh, white folks who identified with the United States politically. Almost no Americans lived in that giant area other than a few areas of, I think, what today is Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. And so it was just a matter of slick negotiating, which I, I certainly respect uh, Franklin Adams and Jay for being that good at, at diplomacy. So, um, so, so I, I would argue yeah. that at the, at, the very, at the very inception of the U.S. as an independent republic, already territorial expansion is like one of the defining features and top priorities. Um, and then, you know, someone might, might object, well, that was done at the negotiating table. Uh, that's not conquest, but I would say, well, 
over the next uh, several decades, it was conquest because, of course, most of the people who lived there at the time were the natives and they had to be, you know, brought under control or. Oh, I, I agree. Whatever. I mean, look at look at the wars that occurred in the uh, in the 1600s, you know, and trying to comp- conquer present aboriginal nations by whether they were French or, or British colonizers and agents of the state. You know, that was going on for literally 200 years before the, the shots are fired at Lexington and Concord in 1775. I think it's a great point that you bring up. And, and the bifurcation that I was drawing when I said 1871 for the Korean Peninsula is where the United States is finally doing an extraterritorial colonial expansion versus the territorial colonial expansion right. in, in that other we words, saw heading over- west overseas rather than exactly. just contiguous land. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And that's that's another um aspect of uh Nugent's thesis in Habits of Empire is he says, you know, he, he argues the United States has always been an empire from its foundation, but he says that it's not it's, it hasn't been the same exact kind of empire consistently through because of course um empires that are around for a long time, they often go through sort of distinct phases where they're operating in different ways. Um you know, the British Empire is the same way where uh, it starts off one way and then over the course of several centuries, it kind of evolves differently over time in terms of exactly how it is they're operating and running and expanding sure. their empire. Yeah. And so he says, you know, phase one of the American empire, which roughly lasts up through uh, the civil war is expanding in, into contiguous land territory. Uh, phase two, which um, I think he actually says kicks off with the acquisition of Alaska. Um, but, you know, roughly around the same time you're talking about with the Korean expedition that most people don't even know about. Um, phase two is going overseas and, and acquiring uh, overseas territories, mostly islands, but um, a few things that weren't islands. And then that lasts until roughly the outbreak of World War uh, two. So that's, you know, when you get the acquisition of the Philippines and Hawaii and Puerto yep. Rico and all yep. that. And yeah. then that, that phase three, which maybe we're in the latter stages of. Uh, is the post-World War II f- form of the American empire, which is where uh, territories are rarely annexed formally, right? Um, you know, you take over Afghanistan, but nominally it's a sovereign country with its own government, even yeah. though in practice we all know it's an American sock puppet and whatever. Um, but that's that's basically that, that phase three is primarily based on um, exerting military and financial power uh, informally you know, over countries that are nominally sovereign. And what you've defined is fascism. The, the, uh, the, the, the distinction between communism and fascism is that communism is the wholesale takeover by the state of everything in there and flagging it as, let's say, Aeroflot or flagging it as British Airways or something like that. Fascism uses taxation, regulation, and other coercive means employed by the state to vertically and horizontally puppeteer and control how corporations and firms behave in the marketplace. Yeah. And to me, it seems like fascism is in a way kind of like an amped up or more aggressive or more totalitarian. I'm not sure the exact way to put it, but um, form of mercantilism, essentially. Yes. If, if you look yeah. back at like the, the earlier phases of the British overseas empire uh, and the Dutch empire before them, from whom the British learned a lot of their methods. And the Italians. Yeah. You have these uh, 
these public-private partnerships, right? You've got, you know, the Virginia Company, the British East India Company, and these are these weird hybrid uh, sorts of corporations where, in a way, they're private corporations, they have stockholders, they're trying to make a profit, and yet at the same time, they're joined at the hip with the state, they're chartered by by their state, uh, given certain, you know, powers and privileges and monopolies and whatever, you know, the, or, the origins of the British in India is exhibit A of what you're talking about, because they use that very mercantilist means to oh, yeah. insert themselves into the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They didn't they didn't take it over directly until no. what after the after the mutiny. Right. It was um, the Sepoy mutiny where once it became the Raj officially. But again, one thing that the British did, I'll, I'll give them credit for this, is that when they took over a country or an imperial holding, they, whether they did this consciously or not, I suspect consciously because they're pretty savvy folks, they would have the stakeholders of the indigenous population as a whole lot of the worker bees in the bureaucracy of the administration of that imperial quarter. Yeah, the way that um, my advisor described uh, that methodology, which really came to dominate how the British ran things, especially after the loss of the North American colonies yeah. um, is uh, the way he summed it up was indirect rule where possible direct rule when necessary. And Indeed. so, yeah, the preference would be to rule through a local sock puppet or what have you, <laughs> um, unless for whatever reason that wasn't working in that yeah. particular place. Yeah. And so, yeah, and a lot of their, a lot of their initial takeover of African territory would be that way. They wouldn't just come in usually anyway and directly take the place over from day one. Instead um, they'd make, you know, agreements and treaties and whatever with chief and things. Yeah. Um, and, and Egypt is a wonderful example. It's the, the British control of Egypt from the late 19th to the mid 20th century is to me, it always struck me as a very American looking kind of a thing where, um, because they wanted to keep control of the Suez Canal after they uh, bought out the French and everything, um, they took it over indirectly where, legally speaking, Egypt was still supposedly a province of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, legally speaking, it still had its own, I uh, forget the title, but basically governor under the Ottoman Empire. And yet the British had a massive military presence and um, you know they maintained advisors in Egypt that basically called the shots. It, it always just struck me again, as I was learning about this stuff, you know, 18 years ago or whatever, and then watching what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time, I was like, Oh yeah, uh, what we're, what we're doing well, uh, and, over and, there and, is very similar. And then you have interesting fault lines, like what happened when, let's see, I think it was when Pakistan broke away from India, what you had was British forces fighting British forces because there were British forces advising both sides of that conflict. Huh, interesting. I never yeah. really looked yeah. into that aspect of things. I, I basically just knew about the, you know, the massive violence and dislocation because, um, you know, people found themselves on the wrong side of the, of the new dividing line. You know, I, I, I apologize for being all over the map, but you, you brought up something. So I have to say Britain's treatment of India during World War II, for those who aren't aware, was just absolutely horrific. Millions of people died of starvation while their, their martial culture, as it were, their martial race, which is a phrase the British are fond of, were off fighting in World War II. 
Churchill was a, he was a bastard when it came to so many things. But when it came to India, I think that he was intentionally cruel and evil in his treatment of India during World War II. And they were organized starvation campaigns in order to sustain the war effort. And it's awful. So, you know, one thing I've really appreciated about the Dangerous History podcast and listening to it, because I've listened to a lot of your episodes, I'd say I probably listen to three quarters of them. I love the way you take a Klieg light and you shine it into parts of history that are usually neglected at the universities uh, for for various reasons. But you shine it into into part. and, And for you and I, dates have one single importance. It's not something you and I memorize. We discover that, for instance, why is the 1871 investment of the Korean Peninsula by American forces important, and why is that signal? It's because it's shortly after the cessation of hostilities and the War of Northern Aggression, where Lincoln prevails, and then all of a sudden, after that five-year interregnum, we can get back on with our pogrom against the aboriginals so that we can have this nation-state from sea to shining sea, but... I really appreciate in your podcast, of course, dates are important, but what you recognize is that cause and effect, and it goes in both directions in order for us to find the origin story, the patient zero of why something happened. I particularly, for instance, when I talk about Michael Collins and the Empire Blinks in episode three, I talk about this, this sort of like combined hurricane of events planet-wide that all of a sudden, in my estimation, leads to the cessation of that 800-year occupation of Ireland as a result, correlatively, of what happened in India at the time with the Jolly and Wallybaugh massacre. Those interested can listen to episode three, Michael Collins, The Empire Blinks, where I talk about that. Yeah, well, one of the many things that um, I complain about uh, in terms of academia, and I've got a long list. I've actually considered making a podcast episode now that I'm outside of conventional academia and I've gone full rogue. I've considered doing an episode just like listing my top criticisms of academia, having Please been in, inside of it for, um, I was in it for 22 years, counting my time as a student and my time as a professor. And, um, you know, maybe like my top 10 gripes or criticisms of academia, like structurally and, That'd be a great episode. Yeah, I think people would find it interesting, uh, an insider's perspective. You know, it's kind of like when an insider uh, from the military spills some of the beans about about what's really going on, or an insider from like a law enforcement agency tells the truth, or a Smedley Butler type, you know. Um, And one of my kind of big picture complaints about academia is the hyper-specialization. And it, it goes beyond just, you know, most... For example, most history professors know relatively little economics or most political science professors know relatively little, um, I don't know, psychology that, you know, what might be a logically a connected field of knowledge, you know, and and the ancients understood this, you know, people like Aristotle, they understood that like it's it's really not great to try and make these rigid walls between disciplines because they, they all connect to each other. And even just within a particular discipline, uh, it. It really, I don't know, I I found it off-putting and strange when I was in graduate school, especially 
the degree to which many of the professors now that there were exceptions and they were usually my favorite professors, but many of the professors, they were super duper expert in their one little particular um, specialized field. And then they were shockingly ignorant of other, you know, fields, even within history, even fields that you would think would be logically closely connected. Asimov gives a great example of that, where he talks about what if you built skyscrapers that are hundreds of stories tall and you don't know of the existence of elevators? You simply don't have that knowledge. Well, because you don't have that knowledge, you would say, well, people obviously aren't going to go up 100 or 150 stories of steps. They probably live near where they work. They don't leave very often. They And you go off on all these tangents and you and you build this world simply because you're missing one vital aspect of what it is. And I also wanted to hit on something that that you were illuminating, which is all innovation and genius, in my mind, for the most part, is a result of interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary ferment. Like when you have somebody who knows economics, knows politics, knows history, Neil Ferguson, I don't agree with everything he says. He's sort of a renaissance man, as as John Cleese would say. When it comes to that kind of thing, he does a really good job of pulling that together. I think Murray Rothbard did a tremendous job of pulling that kind of thing together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would notice when I was a student, you know, that somebody, let's say, who specialized in military history of a particular era and place or whatever would not know as much about the cultural history of that, that time and place. And I always kind of felt like, well, that seems kind of important because, you know, war is in many ways a cultural construct. I mean, um, as anybody who studies the history of warfare, even a little bit, even reads like a couple of books by someone like John Keegan um, quickly realizes like, oh yeah, war is a very different thing from one culture to the next, from one time and place to the next, as far as, you know, people's conception of how it ought to be fought and what, what is allowed, what is not allowed, you know, what are really the goals of the conflict? I mean, this is one of those things where if you look back at the Spanish fighting the Aztecs, it's not just all the technological differences and the the microbes and whatever. It's also uh, two cultures that had very different ideas of how war ought to be conducted and what the goal of it is. So, yeah, I mean, this, this made me an, an awkward fit in conventional academia because I was always interested in looking over the next hill uh, and trying to figure out things that were connected. And it was amazing how often I would find, you know, information that was related to a field that the people in that field didn't know about, even though it's something uh, seemingly closely connected. And I've just continued to do that with my podcast uh, to try and find connections people haven't made before. Um, and one that I, I often point to relatively recently, I guess now it was a year or two ago, um, but I discovered something that. Uh, in my work on Woodrow Wilson, that most Woodrow Wilson scholars either don't know about, or if they do, they don't, they don't write about it, uh, which is that Woodrow Wilson, during his two-year tenure as governor of New Jersey, uh, he uh, signed into law a eugenics bill for the state of New Jersey um, that was uh, thankfully thrown out as unconstitutional before anybody was sterilized under it. Uh, but not just that he signed a eugenics bill into law while he was governor, which I don't think it's mentioned in in just about any biography of Wilson I've ever seen, but also that his point man on that issue, the guy who basically wrote his um, eugenics bill, 
was a psychiatrist originally from um, somewhere in Central Europe, I forget exactly where, uh, who, now I'm blanking on his name because I don't have my notes in front of me, but um, from that episode, but basically uh, he was a European psychiatrist and a huge proponent of eugenics, um, who was, I believe, part Jewish. And at the time Wilson was governor, he happened to be living in New Jersey and working at a, like an asylum there. So he writes Wilson's eugenics bill that Wilson then signs into law. Uh, and then some years later, this uh, psychiatrist moves back to Europe not long before World War II kicks off. He ends up in the custody of the Nazis because he was part Jewish and ends up getting sent to one of the camps. I believe it was Buchenwald, but I could be misremembering that detail. And um, even though he was an inmate of the camp, he uh, nonetheless started collaborating with the Nazis as sort of like a trustee, you know, in, inside the, the prison camp and was assisting them with some sort of eugenics uh, experiments. I still don't know the details. Still, still haven't been able to dig up the details on what exactly he was doing. But whatever it was he was doing, the other inmates of that camp were were terrified of him and hated him. And whatever it was he was doing, it was bad enough that after the war, when that camp was li- liberated, uh, this psychiatrist ended up being charged and convicted of crimes against humanity. And I only stumbled across that detail that this guy who later is working for the Nazis on eugenics projects in one of their camps wrote Woodrow Wilson's eugenics bill uh, in, in 1911 or whatever. I only came across that because I also, while I was researching Woodrow Wilson, I also happened to be reading books and articles uh, on eugenics because in the future I might do some podcast coverage on the issue of eugenics in the United States. So my point is that, that these um, normally – the, the history of eugenics in the United States is its own little silo. And then the history of Woodrow Wilson is its own little silo. And I don't know, because I can't read people's minds, I don't know if all the Wilson biographers who, who don't mention, usually don't even mention that Wilson signed a eugenics bill into law as governor of New Jersey, let alone that the guy who wrote it later shows up a few decades later working with the Nazis. I don't know if all the Wilson biographers who don't mention that, if they just aren't aware of it or is it because most of Wilson's biographers are relatively positive on him? They'll, they'll typically say, yeah, Wilson was great. Almost everything he did was wonderful. His only failures are, uh, yeah, he was a bit of a racist and we don't like that anymore. Uh, and then also, unfortunately, he failed to get the U.S. Senate to ratify the Treaty um, of Versailles and get America to join the League of Nations. And oh, I think that the, a shame? I think the, the progressive ideologists have a stake in trying to give him the finest burnish that they can, despite their revelations about Wilson's racism. I think that deserves an episode where you examine that. And if I recall, there are points at which the American eugenics programs to include Margaret Sanger were an inspiration for what the national socialists did in the 1930s. And of course, during world war two, with some of their exterminationist campaigns. Uh, And I want to bring up one other thing, historically speaking, since you and I are talking about historiography. Academics in the West, with few exceptions, don't speak more than one language, for the most part. Because of that, they're losing a lot of primary source documentation, especially let's take the example of of Germany, whether it's 19th or 20th century. They're, uh, They're losing a lot of context. They're losing a lot of cultural IQ. And and because of that, a lot of the secondary source stuff that we see will draw from English-speaking sources that may have been translated from there, 
for instance, let's take it a step further. You and I, I would, I would, I would put us as fanboys of the Irish Revolution from 1916 to 1922. I remember when, mm-hmm. when you and I were first talking, we were, we had a, a similar interest in that. There's where all the primary and secondary source documentation on a very active European heritage insurgency is available to anybody who speaks English, which is the exception to the rule when you're studying asymmetric warfare or irregular warfare. So it's a huge treasure trove to examine, well, what happened? You know, of course, with the Easter Rise in 1916, the Irish lose in a big way to the British, but that also lends itself to the impetus that allows a mere six years later, the Irish have their uh, they have their freedom and they have their free state. Uh, eerily enough, CJ, it just so happens that post World War II, the major French enterprises, one in Indonesia, uh, Indochina, and one in in Algeria. In Algeria, by 1958, they've been there since the 1830s. By 1958, almost all French people are gone out of Algeria. I mean, it's a it it was part of metropolitan France for for over a century. Almost all of them are gone. And then by 1962, they have their independence, even though it didn't look like that in 1958. History just has a weird way of making its way. It's like Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, nature finds a way, history finds a way. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about something you talked about, I believe, in your most recent podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, and that you also talked about way back when, when we did that series um, all those years ago. Sure. Uh, which is your idea that your your thesis that 1916 to 1922 is kind of like peak gorilla uh, in terms of, you know, some of the most gifted practitioners of irregular warfare uh, and also kind of setting the mold yes. for, for future insurgencies and whatever. So. And so yeah. uh, you say in, in particular, three uh, giants of irregular or guerrilla warfare operating during that period. So you've got Michael Collins yep. in Ireland. You've got yep. T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia operating in the, Middle, in the East. Middle East. And then you've got definitely the least known of the three, but in some ways the most interesting. <laughs> Very um, interesting. And, and, and probably, probably simply the least known because he's the only one of the three that hasn't had uh, any big Hollywood movies made about him. Right. I, because I, I, I think young Indiana Jones had one episode where they talked about him. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that rings a bell. That rings a bell. And that's of course, uh, Paul, uh, von Leto Vorbeck, if I'm yes, remembering indeed. the name correctly, yeah, which yeah. I hadn't really known much about him at all until, uh, we spoke for the first time way back. And, and I feel like someone ought to make, and maybe I'll do it. I've, I've actually got multiple ideas for screenplays, but I just, I don't know when I'll find the time to write them. Um, but one of the ideas that I have for a screenplay is a, you know, kind of epic, military historical movie about him about about uh leto vorbeck operating in africa i think that it never got made because of course we're supposed to think that the germans are always eternally the bad guys including during bad. world war one yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we retroactively map nazism backwards somehow <laughs> um in, in a in a move of historical alchemy and, and, and i have to i have to tell the listeners that leto vorbeck refused to join the Nazi party yeah. afterwards. He, uh, in November, 1918, he becomes the sole German general on planet earth who was undefeated. 
And I think it's a, a, a full week after November 11th, he finally brings his shoots troop in, his troops and his European officers, and they formally surrender and then uh, go back to Germany. I don't know how long they remain there. I I have to tell you that his post-World War One career was morally correct. His pre-World War One career wasn't morally correct. From my own uh, chronological time that I live in, where I can look back and I can say all slavery and all genocide is bad. I can say that now. But when he did this from 1904 to 1908, this is prior to what he did in German East Africa during World War I from 14 to 18, there was the Hararo tribe in German Southwest Africa, what is now Namibia. They they committed some rather genocidal and awful things. They borrowed from the British concentration camps. He participated in a lot of awful things. So I'm 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 not letting him off the hook entirely, but apparently he had some kind of revelation morally after World War One in which when the Nazis became the thing in Germany, he refused to be a part of it. As a matter of fact, he lived in poverty for a time. And here's what's extraordinary. And I can't recall the time that this happened. So in South Africa, a, a, a an ancestor or a um, successor to Jan Smoots even gave him a pension, an allied pension, in order to help him because he was rather poor at the time. Here's an ally who's saying, you know, you performed on the field so extraordinarily, so extraordinarily that we're going to offer you a pension. I mean, at the time, and and please listen to the episode if any the listeners are are interested in there aren't a lot of materials out there on Leto Vorbeck, but I would say the peak against his 10,000 10, troops trooper was 500,000 troops and during that four-year campaign the allies levied no less than 130 general officers and flag officers against him to best him and failed to do so well so I'll definitely refer people to I guess it was your fifth episode where you uh, it is gave an overview yeah. of this this peak guerrilla idea yeah um and these three titans of irregular warfare uh but if you wouldn't mind just kind of running through and giving a, a brief synopsis of of each of them and you know in whatever order you want to of collins uh lawrence and leto vorbeck uh, for any listeners who aren't familiar with any of them sure I'll, I'll i'll start with michael collins neil jordan did a film on him in the 1990s that as with all film, and, and this is something that uh, you and I have spoken of, CJ, artistic license takes place and historical narratives aren't always neatly packaged for a two to three hour cinematic enterprise. And and we'll discuss this when, when we talk about T.E. Lawrence too. But in the case of Michael Collins, it's amazing what this man of mayhem, this intelligence officer for the Irish Republican Army, this second to Eamon de Valera, who would become the prime minister of the of the free state of Ireland and free Ireland for decades after that. They always butted heads and such, but he was the be-all and end-all of originating flying columns, sabotage. He had something called the squad, where he quite literally on in November 1920 decapitated a large part of the detection and intelligence apparatus that London had sent there with their elite sleuths and espionage operators. He killed a dozen of them one morning in a simultaneous assault. The 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 Precy 
of my thesis that I put forward is this. Michael Collins, the Irish lose big in 1916 with the Irish rising. The British put them down in a brutal fashion. But by 1918 to 1922, they have not participated in World War I. Michael Collins was starting to take his sabotage to the next level. But something happens in India, and that something is the Jolly Wallipop Massacre, in which almost 2,000 Indians are gunned down in cold blood in this confined square by British and, and uh, British-uniformed Indian troops. And Churchill, which, and, and as you know, CJ, in conversations, you know, I, terrific rhetorician, but so was Hitler. Uh, so was Mussolini. I, I'm so conflicted about Winston Churchill because I think that morally the man was a warmonger. He was an imperialist and he did a lot of very wicked things in World War One and World War Two. And he wasn't the best strategist, even though in the end he prevails. In World War II, he does something called the Amritsar speech that condemns the Jolly Wallybaugh massacre. And I do wish that somebody with a proper British accent would record it and put it on YouTube, because to me, it is the best speech he ever wrote in his life. It's the best speech he ever performed in his life, where he's calling out the events that took place as a result of British arms. Monstrous. So here we have World War I, which has lay in the British low. They are in so much debt. They are rationing. They are exhausted. Their empire is in the hazard. They've just had this incident in India. The Irish are continuing their their 800-year epic journey of of lifting the finger to the UK and saying, eh, we're not interested in sticking around for very long. I think it was a combination of all these events that allowed Michael Collins to prevail. And by 1922, he, Michael Collins, is able to get, I think it's 1921 or 22, is able to get a free state proclamation from London. Not a breakaway, but a free state proclamation, which caused a civil war because some wanted a complete breakaway. So what you have is you have Irish socialists fighting Irish socialists in order to establish the winner of Irish socialism. Once one of the bands of Irish socialists is bested by the other band of Irish socialists. And at the age of 31, Michael Collins is assassinated. I repeat, at the age of 31 in 1922, Michael Collins is, is assassinated. And, and I do hold him to be, if I had to take a single human being who was responsible for wresting Irish independence from the British after an 800-year occupation, that man is Michael Collins. Yeah, he is a really interesting figure because like many, though not all of the sort of luminaries of irregular warfare, he didn't have any kind of a conventional military background. I think he had been what, like a clerk at the post office or Indeed. a bank clerk or something like yep. that. Yep. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's a pattern. Obviously, Leto Vorbeck is an exception. Um, but very often the most successful practitioners of irregular warfare uh, do not have a conventional military background. I, well, I think of even the yeah. American Revolution figures like Nathaniel Green, you know, for example, who a- ended up being brilliant, yeah. fighting a somewhat irregular campaign in the South in the latter part of the war. And yet nothing about his background prior to the outbreak of that war would have led you to believe that, you know, he had really much 
uh, in the way of proper background and knowledge. And yet sometimes that's actually a good thing because it allows someone to think outside the conventional box. I think so too. Nathan Bedford Forrest would be another example of that where he goes from private to general in the, uh, in the course of a little under two years. And, you know, we can, we can see what he did as, as a matter of fact, there were members of the German general staff who used Nathan Bedford Forrest's campaigns as examples of why Blitzkrieg would be an effective new means of third-generation warfare. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so roughly uh, contemporary, at least with the beginning of Michael Collins's irregular warfare career. Oh, by the way, um, yeah, I, I don't know if you if I don't recall if you mentioned this just now or not, but um, in your podcast episode, you mentioned, uh, as in the case with all three of these guys, really. Uh, the numerical odds that Collins was facing where he had like a few hundred uh, trigger pullers and and he's facing, I call it gorilla math. Yeah. Yeah. So he's facing what tens of thousands when you combine the British troops deployed against him, plus the various, you know, police agencies, the, the Ulster constabulary, et cetera. And then he's got literally guys numbered in the hundreds with, you know, whatever weapons they could scrounge or smuggle in his flying columns. And most of those weapons were scrounged from British armories that they had stolen them from. Yeah. 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 So that is a, you know, talk about asymmetric, right? (laughs) Um, Well, and and then I fast forwarded uh, several decades to the Irish Republican army where at their peak for trigger pullers and active auxiliaries, bomb makers and bomb deployers, you're looking at maybe 500. And then you're looking at up to 55,000 British troops, British police, Royal Ulster Constabulary, Northern Irish police organizations, espionage organizations and such. So when you do those, when you do that ratio math, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and when we talk about Leto Vorbeck uh, a little later on, you will find that at his max, he had maybe 10 to 12,000 troops under him arrayed against as many as 350 to 500,000. Yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, talk yeah. about like David and Goliath. So, you know, I'm sure lots of people have seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia or whatever, but what would be your Cliff's Notes version of T.E. Lawrence and why he is a standout in the history of irregular warfare? So you brought this up and I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a great insight is that these guys tend to be renaissance men these guys tend to be comprehensivists they tend they have some expertise but they have expertise in many areas and they're able to bridge that expertise so te lawrence he's a young captain he's a cartographer in the british army in the middle east and he thinks that he has a way to influence and create an arab army so that they can set themselves upon the vulnerable Turkish rear and turn the tide in the Middle East to bring pressure off of the European continental war that's been raging now for two years. Here's here's what I think, too. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of be all over the map, and I apologize for that ahead of time. Lawrence is a medievalist, and I really think he's a medievalist and he's a Christian, but he's a deep reader. He's a voracious reader. I honestly think that if he had not been a medievalist, he could not have captured and influenced the Arab mind and the Arab armies that he did during that time. 
if he didn't possess that because he couldn't have connected with the Islamic mindset, which is very medievalist at the time in that snapshot of time in the Middle East at the turn of the 20th century. And also, he's an out-of-the-box thinker. Uh, he has, uh, unfortunately, the podcast, I said 21 or 22 articles, but he wrote something called 27 Articles. So if you don't have time to read Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which was his big, thick, turgid philosophical tome on the revolt in the desert, which is another book that he wrote, and you don't have time to read that, read the 27 Articles. It, it's, I think it's less than it, just dozens of pages, but it really sums up the watchwords, the phraseology, and the edicts that he employed in order to best the Turks and, and, and by extension, the Ottoman Empire when he fought them from 1916 to 1918. A lot of innovation took place. For instance, what you'll find, and I'd mentioned Nathan Bedford Forrest earlier, I want to mention this to illustrate what happens. In the American Civil War, when U.S. Grant was investing Vicksburg, four-fifths of his total order of battle was devoted to protecting his lines of communication. I would say that three-fifths of the total Turk military was invested in protecting their rail lines of communication. And it's it's like the IRA said to Maggie Thatcher, you have to be right all the time. We have to be right once. The same thing occurred here. There is no way an army, despite investing three-fifths, four-fifths of their total order of battle to protecting their supply lines of communication, in this case, rail lines, there's no way that the rebels or the guerrillas in this case aren't going to get lucky in one, t- one time or another. Rail lines were the primary means by which they transported both logistics and troops. You take that out and then you, in- you invest that obstacle at which it's taken out with an assault and a raid and an ambush. You're going to start taking your toll on not only the enemy's numbers, but the enemy's morale. What Lawrence was doing was he was doing what Liddell Hart Basil Liddell Hart would later consider the indirect approach. The direct approach is you're you're in that movie, The Patriot, and you're standing off 100 meters from each other, and you're firing against each other, and last man standing is the one who wins. Indirect approach is you take them out at the flanks, or you take them out from the rear, and it's a much more effective way to best your opponent, which is what Lawrence was doing through that, throughout that entire time. Not only was Lawrence able to militarily achieve the things that he did, but he cobbled together this very large Arab army that for the first time in hundreds of years were cooperating and coordinating together in a military fashion. Now, of course, that wouldn't last because after 1918, they all go their separate ways. They have their spats. And and Lawrence is defeated after 1918 because he had made a lot of promises to the Arabs on their own suzerainty, independence, and later not being a part of the British Empire, not being a part of the French Empire, not being a part of all these European interests who wanted to take over entire swaths of the map in the Middle East. There was something called the Sykes-Picot Accord, if I recall, which I think was secret during World War I, but it was making promises between the Allies that Lawrence wasn't privy to, that pulled the rug out from under all the promises that he, had, he had made to the members of the Arab armies during the conduct of the war. And 
from 1918 to 1922, he, he tried his very best to remedy that, that problem, but but couldn't make it happen. The The British had basically done things that of course were immoral, that of course were in their best national interest, that of course would give them the upper hand in the Middle East. And Lawrence wanted none of it. So he retired to private life after that. And it seems to me that um, so far of the two guys that you've mentioned, Michael Collins and T.E. Lawrence, that Aside from their strategic and tactical savvy, that what really helped them to be successful is their cultural understanding of the people they were leading, which is in stark contrast to uh, the Coindinistas, who <laughs> typically lack a genuine cultural understanding of the people that they're trying to you know, establish that's a, control That's a over. great observation, CJ, so, yes. Yeah, in the case of Michael Collins, he understood the Irish people because he was one of them. You know, he, yeah. he, he was an indigenous person there. Um, and then in the case of Lawrence, obviously he wasn't an Arab, but he was a scholar. And yeah, great he, sympathy for the Arab mindset. Yeah, yeah. He genuinely tried to understand their culture as best he could. Obviously, he even, you know, went native in the sense of adopting their dress and you know a lot yes. of their their cultural yeah. aspects and so he was able yeah. to interact with them in a way that you know when i was watching in real time the implementation of coin first in iraq and then in afghanistan i just remember thinking this is this is tokenism this is like a superficial attempt Amen. to try to throw a bone to these people and i don't think you know they may not be uh, most of the people in those countries may not be highly educated in a Western sense, but they're not dummies. And people are usually pretty savvy at being able to tell when somebody is genuinely trying to, um, you know, appreciate their culture and interact with them in a good faith sort of manner versus when they're obviously just pandering. And, you know, it's almost sort of like a form of tokenization. Oh, yeah. You know, you and I are big fans of of historical cinema, despite the artistic license that's taken. And one of my very favorite parts, though, because people come to me, CJ, and they say, well, what about corruption? And I tell them corruption is the lubrication of civilization, whether you like it or not, whether it's institutionalized or whether it's just part of the everyday character of how people do what they do. So there's a scene in Lawrence of Arabia where Abu Tayyid, he's 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 leading one of these army groups that's within the larger army that Lawrence has. He's accused of corruption, and he says this terrific thing that always sticks with me. He says, I am but a river to my people. And I got to tell you, in my travels planet-wide, when I go to Afghanistan and we discover that the battalion or the brigade commander, Afghan, is getting a 10% VIG on the pay for his troops, from the West, we say, well, my God, that's that's just that's that's horrific. But for them, that's what they do. So per your observation about cultural IQ, what you do when you discover that, you say, well, that's the way they do it here. Okay. Yeah. And there's, in my mind, a parallel or a connection between uh, the progressive mindset domestically and the progressive mindset abroad, it's the same, you know, the same mindset that says, all right, we're going to send progressive social workers and school marms to the Philippines to uplift and civilize them is the same progressive mindset that says, all right, we're going to, you know, uh, bring in 
outsiders with fancy college degrees to fix the inner cities or, you know, to uplift the poor people of Appalachia. Uh, it's the same, the same mindset and ideology of, of the arrogant outsider Absolutely. who is going to come in and, and fix another group of people. And, yeah. you know, they may not want you to fix them in the first place. And certainly they're not going to be amenable to it when you're coming in uh, as an outsider with this arrogance. And again, you know, people, I mean, they may it, not be educated, but they're yeah. not stupid. In Afghanistan, where we have these gender initiatives, we we had no idea the second and third order effects of trying to upend hundreds of years of an oral history culture by having them adopt something that is completely alien to their culture. Yeah, and I think currently in the U.S., you see that with you know much of the interior part of the country, particularly a lot of the South and uh, West and you know, parts of the Midwest where you see it coming in through the schools with all the woke, all the woke, for lack of a better term, uh, indoctrination and propaganda. And the people who actually live in these places are not having it, you know, and it's really one of the roots of the current, not just political, but, but genuinely cultural divide in the United States. Um, and to me, the, the woke people, whether they're operating through the schools or operating through movies and TV shows or whatever, um, they're cultural imperialists, in my opinion, Indeed. and they're yeah, they're agree. no different than the people going in saying, "Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna turn uh, Iraq into a modern Western democracy or whatever like that." It's the same kind of thing. Like, no, uh, it's not going to work, and you're you're wasting your your time and resources, and you're going to provoke uh, all sorts of negative, unintended uh, consequences too. But these people never seem to learn. Well, they they don't. I mean, there's a reason that since 1945. The United States, and maybe one can say largely the West, has lost every conflict they've been involved in, especially if those conflicts have an irregular flavor. When you look, for instance, at, at Afghanistan, for almost two decades, every year we have a new general officer coming in, for the most part U.S., and he arrives, gets off his plane, stands athwart the country and says, I've got this. And they don't have anything because they... It's it's rinse, wash, repeat the same failed notions, nostrums, and beliefs that don't work there, that simply don't work. You know, one thing that astonishes me about the Ukraine-Russia conflict, number one, in all my professional life, as I would say I'm, I'm a fairly trained observer of things martial and military, I have never seen a conflict where I can't trust any of the data, and that's the case for me right now. You know, people will ask me, well, what do you think of that? Well, I I don't really have an opinion, CJ, on, on what's happening in Iraq and in Russia because I don't have any data to base my, my suppositions on. But here's what I do know is that it's going to be very interesting if the Russians prevail, and I put that in air quotes, and I don't have a dog in either hunt, is that if the Russians prevail and we see a European heritage insurgency take place, for the first time since the Baltic states in the 1950s and 60s in Ukraine, it's as an observer of things irregular, it's going to be an unconventional warfare. It's going to be interesting for me to watch what technology does there, what culture does there, uh, what effectiveness they have, what their guerrilla math and calculus is going to be. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting on the sidelines and watching. I've got popcorn. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I just hope it doesn't spiral out of control and go nuclear. That's the only Indeed. thing yeah. that is uh, very yeah. unsettling uh, yeah. is is having a proxy war that close to Russia yeah. um, between the two states with the largest nuclear stockpiles in the world. You know, um, 89 to 91, you talk about unintended consequences with the blob of the NATO heading east and the Russians saying year in and year out, stop, stop, stop. And then, you know, Newton's third law has consequences for every action. So. Yeah, absolutely. So um, last, and you've already mentioned a bit about him, but the the overview of Leto Vorbeck and what he did. Sure. Paul Emil Leto Vorbeck had been in Africa since 1902, I think. The, um, the Germans were late to the colony game, and German Southwest Africa and German, and there were other parts, mostly in Southern Africa, where the Germans were at the outset of World War One. Leto Vorbeck was put in charge. He was a colonel at the time, put in charge of protecting these colonies. Well, he's eventually promoted to general officer, and he's in charge of what the what the Germans called Schutztruppe, which were black troops, Askari, who were officered by approximately 200 to 230 European officers during the four years of this conflict. And he managed over that four years with the peak numbers that I talked about earlier, where you have 350,000 to 500,000 allied troops invested against these 10 to 12,000 Schutztruppe, which was reduced by 1918, I think, to three to 4,000 total Schutztruppe. But he managed to best them for the most part. He, he evades them. He conducts raids. He conducts ambushes. He conducts uh, operations against logistical trains, logistical lines. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating what he was able to pull off because he did it in a very unique fashion because he had virtually no support whatsoever from Germany. He lived off the land. He sustained his troops by getting weapons from the Allies. Uh, it's extraordinary what he pulled off. And like you were mentioning earlier in this podcast, I do wish that there were more books and more treatments. And what I'll be sure to do is I, I have looked for stuff. There's my reminiscences in East Africa by Leto Vorbeck, which is an account of what happened there. Uh, there's a, an interesting fellow by the name of Richard Meinertshagen who was a British colonel who also found himself combating Leto Vorbeck. But Meinert Hagen is not a reliable source because there was a book called out called, let's see here, the Meinert Hagen mystery. And uh, I think it's Garfield and the guy's a, he's a serial liar. I'm, it it, it wrote many books. So nothing can be trusted that comes out of Meinert's Meinert Hagen's mouth as far as the literature, both primary and secondary source. And he was one of the biggest interlocutors who talked about what Leto Vorbeck did there. But as I mentioned earlier, we we fast forward to November 1918, and we discover he is the only German general officer, German army, that remains undefeated on planet Earth at that time and surrenders a week after the armistice on November 11th. Really interesting cat. I and like I said, I I am of the school that 
the Wehrmacht, and one can say that the Wehrmacht uh, from the World War II variant was the inheritor of what the Prussians developed in 1805, which ended in 1945, that aside from the Roman legions, the Wehrmacht were one of the finest fighting forces. And it wasn't the Wehrmacht of World War I. That was World War II. This was the, 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 uh, the Reichswehr during World War I. But because of the Prussian, Austrian, and intellectual infusion that we saw that the Germans devoted to the conduct of warfare, I think we saw in microcosm in Southern Africa that application apart from the trench warfare, which was second-generation warfare, which is very attrition-like, unlike the maneuver warfare that we saw in World War I under Leto Vorbeck, which would go on to inform unconsciously the maneuver warfare that would be encapsulated by Blitzkrieg and the investment and taking of most of Western Europe in 1939-1940. And then, of course, we have what I contend is the death of the Wehrmacht in Russia in June 1941, in that they're dead men walking until April 1945. But Leto Vorbeck, just a, a fascinating episode. And as you mentioned, not a lot of folks know about him. I wish there was more scholarly observation. Yeah, I think I remember you mentioning that um, Byron Farwell's book about the yep. Great War in Africa covers him a bit. He does a bit, but not enough. And okay, like yeah. I said, Meinertshagen is is an unreliable source. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I haven't read that book by Farwell. I've read his book on uh, the Gurkhas, and I've read his book on the Boer War. Yeah, uh, and he seems to be a pretty good, you know, kind of uh, narrative military historian. He's I would a say. he's a Brit a British triumphalist narrative historian of the nineteenth century school. So right. yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. and and because you know that you can read between the lines. So a quick editorial comment, if I may, CJ. I, I think that bias exists in everybody. And what I try to do is, for instance, I don't watch the news. I don't read the news. I don't look at anything that comes from a news organization, left or right, because there's a reason they call it programming. But I do read editorials and I do read opinion pieces, because if I read those, they wear on their sleeve what their bias filter is. So if I measure that against what I am aware of is my own bias filter, I can get the single most accurate picture. Yeah, I always just kind of took it for granted where where Farwell was coming from, yeah. Because um, yeah. I, I first you know read some stuff by him uh, when I was in graduate school. So yeah, well, what kinds of things do you have in the works? Um, I know from doing a history podcast for a long time that very often you know you've got things in the planning stages that won't come to fruition for a very long time. But uh, just to entice people, what are some of the <laughs> the topics and stories and things that you uh, have in various planning stages going forward. You know what? It's I I and I want the listeners to know I did not ask him to ask me this. Thank you, CJ. <laughs> you're, you're so prescient. I do have a list. I have a podcast schedule every two weeks through uh, February 25th, 2024, of what I'm going to cover. Wow, I'm a planning. You are much guy. better at you are much better at planning <laughs> than I am. I'm always just kind of you know making it up as I go along, saying, "All right, what do I feel like working on today?" Yeah, yeah. So uh, book reviews. I want to do Douglas Porch's Counterinsurgency, Kenneth Pollock's Armies of Sand: Why Arab Armies Can't Fight, uh, Andrew Basevich, Paths of Descent in America's War for the Greater ME. I'm going to do a episode on gray zone and hybrid warfare. 
I'm going to talk about special operations forces, uh, force planning and application, the structure of American special operations forces, maybe origins. Talk about Plan Columbia. I've got two episodes that I'm going to do on Michael Collins, two episodes on Lawrence, one on Leto Vorbeck. I'm going to cover French coin. Uh, let's see. And then I'm going to do a series on partisan resistance in World War II from Italian to Polish to Ukrainian to Soviet to Yugoslav to Lithuanian to French to China. As a matter of fact, uh, a little uh, trivia tidbit here. What year did the last Baltic partisan surrender to Soviet authorities? Hmm. 1991? You're close. 1982. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so. I just figured it would it would be somebody like as the Soviet Union is officially dissolving, who's like, oh, great. Now that they no longer exist, I surrender. That was Indeed. my, my Indeed. hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. So um, what would you say, aside from just the fact that it's it's very interesting uh, for its own sake, but do, do you think uh, are there any lessons or or utility for somebody to learn about irregular warfare, even if they're not somebody who's, you know, involved in any sort of military matters or uh, anticipates that they would be like, why, why would somebody potentially want to learn more about this? What utility might it have? Do you think? So I have a variety of answers to that. If you'll, if you'll uh, bear with me. And uh, number one is I think that history tells me this. If you don't know where you've been, you can't possibly know where you are. And if you have knowledge of what happened in the past, all that connective tissue that leads forward into the future is a result of what happened in the past. So the more information and the more understanding that you have of that, instead of simply awareness, but actual grokking and understanding of how history informs everything that we do, I think you're better off for it. I think that Military history, which which happens to be what I'm most interested in, is is this very unique compilation of so many components of the human endeavor in one convenient place with the warts and the glory and the success and the failure and everything in between. And I also think, on a more pessimistic note, those who th- who, who don't think that military affairs and war and those kind of things aren't going to visit you now or in the future, you're being naive because peace is an exception. War is what we do. As a matter of fact, I think uh, there was only two years in British history since World War II in which a British soldier did not die in combat. And I think that fully, and CJ, you may have better numbers than I do, fully three quarters of total United States history from 1791, we have been in one conflict or another. For instance, and it doesn't matter what party's in power, and I am a member of neither party, but you have to keep this in mind. Some of the political parties make make a, um, a post where one will say, the Democrats in this case, and, and again, a pox on both, both houses, but the Democrats will say, well, we're the party of peace. If they're the party of peace, then why is it that World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Bosnia, Haiti, Somalia, Libya, the Horn of Africa, and Syria are all Democrat authored? It's because all parties in America are parties of war. 
So it, in my mind, when you're, even from a self-defense perspective, philosophically, if you're aware of what's going on, and of course, as a military historian, I do have a background in conventional forces, but my particular interest happens to be irregular warfare. So whether you're a military historian or just somebody who's living their life and supporting their family, information is power. And the more you know about this kind of warfare, the better off you are, because I don't think that the next hundred years will be peace, unicorns, and fairy dust. Yeah, it definitely looks like there are some ominous uh, storm clouds on the horizon or something like that, a bad moon rising maybe. Yep. You've mentioned that in, I guess, less than a week now, you're going to be launching a second podcast, which <laughs> is something, you know, I've been talking about launching a second podcast for over three years and still haven't quite uh, gotten to it yet. Here you are just, you know, less than a half dozen episodes into your first one and you're already um, uh, getting ready to launch your second one. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what your second podcast is going to be about and what your intentions are for that? So I've got the podcast bug and you're part of that inspiration. You and Daryl Cooper and Scott Horton and others out there who, in my mind, provide so much value for for the buck and the time as opposed to getting a college education. If I were a young man starting out and I were interested in history, I wouldn't attend a single day in college. I would listen to Prof. CJ. I would listen to Scott Horton. I would listen to Daryl Cooper and uh, others that you may come up with. So my every fortnight, I, I plan on putting out a podcast on Chasing Ghosts and a regular warfare podcast. On December 11th, I will premiere into the world The Dash, a stoicism podcast. The Dash means what's on the tombstone. So that's what my podcast is going to be all about. Absent stoicism, I would not have the successes and failures I've had in my life. And I credit stoicism with making me a better person. If it, if it weren't for that, I, I would be lesser the man than I am now. And fortunately, I have five children, three sons. All three of my sons are committed stoics. We talk about that stuff all the time. Uh, Ryan Holiday is out there. If I can divorce myself from Ryan Holiday's ill-founded and um, and historically illiterate notions about politics and just concentrate on his treatment of stoicism, I enjoy his stuff. So I'm going to discuss stoicism, what it has to do with life, what it has to do with leadership, what it has to do with business. For instance, I think that there's a, a vast, and I don't want to monopolize it, I think that there's a huge opportunity out there for Stoic practitioners to go to a business and say, you know, Stoicism can improve your bottom line, improve your profit, reduce your your uh, your cycle time, and make you a better shareholder and deliverer of value to shareholders. I, I don't think there's enough of that. So that's what the Dash is going to be about. Very cool. And I'll definitely be checking that out when you put out that first episode. and. Uh, in general, where should listeners go to follow you and your work and your podcasts? So I have an RSS feed. And so, but if you go to Apple, Spotify, whoever your podcast vendor is and uh, plug in Chasing Ghost or my last name, Bupert, you'll be able to find it. You'll be able to find the dash the same way, which I will publish on December 11th. 
I'm on Twitter. I, I left that vast cancer ward in July 2019, CG. I think that you stayed on after I left. And I, I just came back on. I'm at WPupert at Twitter. And I'd love for folks to follow me. If folks have questions for me, they can get in touch with me at at cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. I'm also on Gap. So, uh, yeah, reach out. I'd And I'd love to hear from folks and give me feedback, uh, positive comments. No, I take that back. Not only positive comments. Give me constructive criticism. If there's stuff that I don't quite have right, then I want to improve that. And I, I would offer to everybody, please have patience with my increasing mastery of the technical portions of podcasting because it is a steep learning curve. Yeah, well, you know, you're off to a better start if you go back and listen to some of <laughs> my earliest episodes. Um, you know, they're they're pretty rough. Uh, I, I know, you know, from firsthand experience that it's it's a particularly weird thing when you're doing solo podcasts it it is just a very awkward unnatural thing until you get used to it because it's one thing if you're doing podcasts where you're you're conversing with others either over the internet or in person um because we talk to people you know every day most of us and um you know but and and for those of us like myself who have teaching experience i'm used to going up there and you know lecturing for a while and whatever but at the same time it's in a room full of people sitting in front of me or during the stupid lockdowns it's to a bunch of zoom people where at least i'm looking at somebody yeah. um but yeah when it's just you and a microphone in a room um and that's it you know it definitely takes a little while um to kind of you know have it feel and therefore sound kind of natural but again you know i i congratulate you uh on your your progress your your uh podcast is coming along very nicely uh considering you know how not very long you've been doing it but well, um, that's it, high that's high praise coming from you cj because the quality of your podcast are top drawer well thank you yeah i've worked hard over uh eight and a half years to, <laughs> to get to my current uh level so um but anyway bill it's been really great to talk to you um after after so long. And, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me today. And, um, again, recommend, uh, to all my listeners to check out your podcast, Chasing Ghosts and check out the dash when it premieres in just a matter of days. So if I may say one final thing, CJ, and that says it's been an honor to be on your program. And I want to repeat our 2015, um, discussion that we had over those six episodes. That is Patient Zero. That is the origin story of Chasing Ghosts, and I want to thank you for that. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, that'll be in uh, one of that'll be one of the many links in the show notes for this episode for folks to go check out the back catalog if they haven't already done so. So, thanks, CJ. You're welcome. Great talking with you. Mm-hmm.